we open up on a smiley face and it's lovely and it's got a little bit of red on it but I'm sure that there's there's no problem it grabs you by the lapel slaps you in the face and says this is going to be dark <laughs> the, the world's smartest man I'm loving his purple suit and I thought maybe it's just his dress sense <laughs> no 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 you misunderstand me I'm the world's smartest man He's definitely got a turn of phrase, hasn't he? He describes New York as an abattoir full of retarded children. Sounds like a card on Cards Against Humanity, that. We're back. Yes! Hello and welcome back to Shark Liver Oil. This is the only podcast that you need if you are at all interested in books and uh, talking about them. Isn't that right, Dave, my very illustrious co-presenter? It certainly is, Matt. My very illustrious co I don't know, anchor. You called yes. it that. Does one anchor a single podcast? Well well listen, when we when you were last with us, we were rounding off. We were on the, the sort of final victory lap of our coverage so far of Game of Thrones. It was about I think we ended up doing about thirty podcasts plus on that. <laughs> it, it, it got out of hand, didn't it? That's fair to say. It, it is an obscene amount of podcasts to do on one series, let alone just one half of a series. So we're going to cleanse the palate and do um, our first graphic novel. Uh, we're going to be doing a, I think it's going to be four parts, on Watchmen. Now Dave is the expert on this book. Um, well, actually, he's the expert compared to me. Compared <laughs> I was going to say, rein it in a little yeah. bit. There are, there, are, yeah. there are nine figure numbers of people in the world who know more about this book than I do. I just know more than you do, which is not hard. Yeah. So basically, of a talent pool of two, Dave is the absolute expert on this, uh, on this tome. Uh, don't so, you uh, fucking le- forget it, all right? <laughs> yeah. So Dave's going to lead us through it. So Dave, uh, just introduce us to what Watchmen's all about. Right, well... Um, Watchmen is uh, it's supposed to be the sort of Citizen Kane of comic books. It's incredibly well thought of, and it was written in the sort of um, uh, late 80s, mid to late 80s. Um, kind of in a parallel world, but one which is extremely similar to our own. But hmm. the thing that's different is that superheroes really exist. Or we should say costumed adventurers really exist. So you've got these people who have taken it upon themselves to dress up in various weird and fantastic ways and kind of deal with the world. But instead of it being a kind of, all you've got to do is over the next four issues of this comic book, find the bad guy and punch him and make the sound effects go blammo and everything will be all right. You've got a much more complicated sort of world um, and shit, shit's got real. It's fair to say that this is not a light one, but it is a very, very good one. What did you make of it? Did you enjoy reading it? Yeah, I loved it. And I've never read a, a graphic novel before. My only experience of anything like this has just been sort of comics, like Beano. And the stuff. Beano, so when amazing. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> so I loved the idea of, um, it's almost like a very, very dense film um, because you're, yeah. you're almost watching it take place through the, obviously through the storyboards. And um, yeah, I thought it was superb, and I can't wait to can't wait to get into it. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Actually, it definitely is on that on that sort of a level. Although I ha- I have to say that the idea of like Dennis the Menace and Nasher done in a Watchmen style <laughs> is extremely pleasing to me. So maybe at the end of it we can uh, we can uh, see what you would think a, a standard Dennis the Menace story would go down like if it if it starred <laughs> Rorschach and uh, and other such other such characters but um uh but let's get started shall we yeah let's do it all right okay so 
Uh, we open up on, on a smiley face, and it's lovely. And it's got a little bit of red on it, but I'm sure that there's, there's no problem, uh, except that then we sort of zoom out a bit. It turns out to be a smiley face badge, which is having a very bad day. It's in a gutter. It's covered in blood. And uh, it's got a, a voiceover from a character called Rorschach. Now, he doesn't seem to be the most happy-go-lucky of characters. He, 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 he says quite clearly that he sees the world going to hell, but also seems to think that he's in a position to save it. Right, and we, 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 get, we get a sense of this character quite early on. I love that the, one of his first lines kind of gives the game away that he's not going to be a terribly smiley, happy people type of guy. One of his first lines, All the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us! And I'll look down and answer, No. So I need whisper as well. It's even more sinister. <laughs> Does he say whisper no. as well? Yeah. No. <laughs> what did you make of this? Are you happy about the idea of being guided through a world by a character whose first first second sentence or something is about um, denying the whores of the world? Yeah, it's great because it's um, it sort of sets the tone for the whole book. Because especially if you come into this from a you know from a Dennis the Menace and Nash <laughs> background, this immediately sort of the fact that the first frame is filled with what turns out to be blood and. Um, and yeah, the 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 voiceover, if you like, is this. Well, is what he is. It's um yeah, it's just a sudden sort of grabs you by the lapel, slaps you in the face, and says, "This is going to be dark. Don't expect. <laughs> it's true, isn't don't it? expect hijinks. Don't expect Minnie the Minx to show up." Anytime, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it doesn't fake you out with a couple of light bits before really hitting you with the dark stuff. It goes straight to a dead man lying in a gutter. Yeah, um, and also because I came from this, may be because I came from sort of a, looking at it as from sort of a, a children's perspective with things like this before I actually came across a, a genuine graphic novel. My first impression of the the blood spatters was that it was sort of like raspberry juice or something. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was my first impression of it. Mm, and that's interesting actually because there is a little R- Rorschach does do a joke later on in this chapter which touches on the idea of it. It's awful. Somebody says, what's that on the badge? And he said, is, is it bean juice? And he says, yeah, human bean juice. And you, you get the idea that he came up with that and he was like, wait a moment, that's, that's a joke. I've got to find my friend and say that to my friend because it's a joke. <laughs> that's how I imagine him talking as well. Yeah, that's, that's my impression really of a kind of uh, uh, a maligned sociopath but anyway so um so we we kind of zoom up and, and then we're with a um uh, a policeman in the apartment that this this jumper has been has been thrown from um turns out that this is a guy called edward blake and we get a bit of his backstory turns out he was um uh quite a big cheese um there was a picture of him uh kind of shaking hands with uh, with vice president ford and you know kind of says he's been some sort of some sort of big deal for a while but that's all over um, one of the other things we find out is about this idea of like vigilantism. So, like we said, there's there's these costumed adventurers, but turns out they were all outlawed uh, a few years back, and um, the only ones still operating um, are kind of government sponsored ones. Like, kind of, I just imagine them going around with like shiny spandex suits, but with like a, an approved by Uncle Sam's stamp on the arse or something. And um, but then but then they talk about Rorschach. It's very very clear that Rorschach was one of these guys. 
He never stopped operating, but you better believe the government is not happy about the fact that he still does what he does. Um, and it mm. turns out that our our narrator, the man guiding us through this world, um, is not only horribly bleak, but is also wanted for two murders. So, again, not light. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't really pick that up at the start. Um, I think... Um because it, the, the the thing that strikes me about this as well, on a second reading, it dumps a lot of information on you very mm. quickly. And, Jeez, um, yeah. and it's actually kind of good in one way because you can read it twice and get new, you sort of see things you missed the first time, um, which hopefully this podcast will help with as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely something to be said, actually, about the book as a whole. You're right, is that, like, uh, so I just went back and read it, and I, this is my, like, I don't know, 10th reread or something of Watchmen, and I'm still getting stuff, like, in there's individual frames where I'm like, all oh, right, I didn't notice that before, but it kind of enriches the world. And it is a very well-sketched world, actually, and we kind of see that with... Um, uh, we uh, we kind of cut from the cops back to Rorschach himself, and he goes straight to what I'm going to call, and I'm going to call it this in hope, superhero mad gadget number one. <laughs> right? I, I really hope that there's going to be more of these throughout the book, uh, because I don't think it's a proper superhero story without um, gadgets like this. Uh, this, one's, this one's a classic. It's a gas-powered grappling gun. Um, it fires it up, up to uh, towards the uh, the site of the murder, I think, and shins his way up. Um, the other gadget he's got is this sort of mask, which is appropriate to the name. It looks like a Rorschach test, um, and kind of seems to change shape from from like from panel to panel. You know what a Rorschach test is? Yeah, it's where psychology, like I assume, psychiatrist would show you a, p- a pattern, and you would. You, you would sort of say what you think it looks like and it's supposed to give an insight into sort of how your mind works is that is that roughly right i think that's it so it's like it's that bit in space isn't it that classic bit where um where there's a character trying to apply to get back into the army and the way mm. to pass the rorschach test is to say that everything including the rorschach test that looks like a butterfly looks like something to do with blowing stuff up <laughs> guts and guns yeah, that's a nice example bombs yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so um, so Rorschach's in Blake's apartment, and he finds a um, <laughs> he, he finds a secret compartment in the wardrobe, and discovers that it turns out this Edward Blake guy was himself a masked adventurer. Um, uh, uh, what I've got written at this point is um, is Captain America's gimp suit. <laughs> Am I alone in having gone there in my brain, looking at the way it sort of hangs up there in the in the in the closet? Like it, it, it looked a little bit sort of. You might want to get the Febreze out. What did you think? Yeah. I thought that whoever made this costume is, is, is known as the clone. He's basically taken a clone and turned the dystopia dial up to a level. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what it's come out with. <laughs> Amazing. You're absolutely right. Um, so we, we, have, we have the most disturbing clown suit in the universe, and that's a crowded field. Um, we also have uh, a photo of what looks like a load of people um, in, like, in superhero costumes and then then they pull a classic uh comic book move because you're looking at a photo but suddenly you're looking at a different photo hey eh? mm. we're looking at a different though well the same photo actually but the same photo somewhere else somebody else has this photo as well and we've got a few kind of reminiscences uh this had a really interesting little vibe to me because it it even one of the characters is much younger than one of the other characters but they're having the kind of like old soldier conversation mm-hmm. yeah and um, these guys are both retired, and as it turns out, they are both—they both used to be the same superhero. 
Um, which I kind of like because there is a bit of a tradition in comics of like, especially with characters like Batman, where you want to kind of refresh the character a bit. Um, or with actually with um, Robin, Robin becomes like this played played quote by like four different characters in the Batman continuum, just to kind of change mm. it up a little bit. And most of the time, when, whenever they do that, they kind of go, ah, oh, anyway, end that. Next, moving on, new reset, reset. You know, but actually, this is kind of a thing where we've had one night owl grow up and get old and be replaced by another guy who himself has grown up and got old. Um, mm. And I, with Hollis, this the older guy. Um, I kind of got the vibe that this is sort of like Bruce Wayne, but without any money. What did you think? Yeah, I think that when I first read this, he's he was there was so little there because you're away from him within a few frames, aren't you? Mm. That he barely registered on the radar. And actually, um, when he reappears later on, it took me a while flicking back and forward just to work out who he was. Um, so I think this is again another part of that. A lot of information arriving at once, and you just you, sometimes you just grab the threads that seem most relevant at the time. So I, I've got to be honest; I, I had a, almost a, a a blank opinion of him <laughs> throughout this part of, of, of the book because yeah. sort of I'm, I'm trying to grasp hold of this current night owl guy who seems to have retired. Um, and then this guy who I thought maybe maybe it's his dad or something who used to do it. Mm. And then there's this. I, I don't know. I think. Part of it is because Rorschach is... Is it Rorschach? Rorschach, I think, yeah. Rorschach. Because Rorschach's such a compelling character, you're kind of just waiting to get back to him at the yeah. start. I certainly felt like that anyway. Your attention keeps getting drawn to, to this to this character. But yeah, I think, you know, it, it, you definitely got a sense of a close bond between this older guy and his once protege who seems to be moving towards retirement too. Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right with, um, certainly with that relational vibe, but also with the layout at the start of the book. It's actually, you know, I've read it all these times and I'd never really noticed until I came to kind of like note this up um, how much exposition there is at the start of this book. Like the first, the first thing is like it's quite compellingly done. But you're right, it's an unbelievable amount of introducing you to the world. Yeah, so I suppose the point is if you feel a bit lost when you first start this, don't feel bad because uh, <laughs> you're not alone. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, that places you in an honourable brotherhood, including uh, Matt and me when I first read it. So, Anyway, so, um, so we don't get much of Hollis, but we do follow the younger guy who's called Dan. We go back to his house and uh and he he you know he lives in a bad part of town and uh, and shit's got real his lock's been broken but uh inside are not um i'm desperate to do a dan allen partridge impression here and go undesirable elements and i'm not gonna accept <laughs> it did um but inside in fact there's rorschach um and this is where rorschach makes his joke um, he's eating baked beans from a can and he makes the crack about the uh, the stuff on the badge not being blood but being human bean juice. Uh, he's only going to get less happy-go-lucky from here, by the way. Spoilers. Uh, but Rorschach's got a theory, right? He's got the idea that somebody is picking off costumed heroes. And he actually says that maybe it was Hollis. Uh, apparently, Hollis, way back when, was part of a group with the comedian and wrote a book saying some... Um, talking some shit about the comedian. And we, we kind of leave it there. At this point, were you kind of... Were you excited about the idea of a, of a, a you know, a load of old... A load of retired superheroes being killed off by somebody? Because it kind of looks like a, super, a, a serial killer comic at this point. Did that kind of appeal mm. to you? Or are you kind of thinking something else must be going on here? 
Yeah, I think at the start, because it's such an unusual concept, sort of very human superheroes who, you know, don't have any, it appears don't have any real special powers. And um, they're sort of fighting for survival in a in, in a very dark and dystopian world. Yeah, I, I was willing to go with a, a generic sort of serial killer plots on top of all this because I thought you know the it's the stuff all around it that's that I'm interested in I'm not so worried about how complicated or how unusual the the, the thrust of the plot is at the moment mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um it seems it seems like Rorschach and and this Dan guy used to work together but um they have this conversation in this old workshop under Dan's house which seems to kind of contain a load of costumes and some sort of machinery sort of a low rent bat cave really mm. And then, then we again. We you're right. We follow Rorschach back out into the streets, um, and, and he's definitely got to turn a phrase, hasn't he? Because he starts monologuing again, and he's right into it as well. He's, he, he describes New York as an abattoir full of retarded children, where the dust <laughs> sounds like a sounds like a card on Cards Against Humanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna I was gonna say he sounds like the most feral Daily Mail reader imaginable. <laughs> but he so and out of this kind of broiling pot of rage, he um, he kind of embarks on what you've got to call a kind of UFC fact fighting mission. He just he sort of goes into a bar, and the barman manages to keep his shit together for literally half a sentence before going, "Shit, don't kill anyone, please, don't kill anyone." <laughs> and, and to be fair to Rorschach, he doesn't right. Um, <laughs> And so I'm desperately trying to make him a, a relatable kind of protagonist at this point. I, I, I'm not too confident about whether or not that's going to work out, but uh, <laughs> I'm doing it for now. Um, but he doesn't kill anyone. But there's a guy in the in the corner of the room that uh, makes what might be the worst judge joke in the history <laughs> of poorly judged jokes, right? Over here's Rorschach, and everybody's got really tense, and it's quiet, and he just goes, hey, Rorschach's got friends now. Must have changed his deodorant. <laughs> so can you imagine how hammered you would have to be to be like, oh, yeah, this one's going to go down well in the room. Yeah, I'm going to do this one. <laughs> no, you can't stop me. I'm funny. I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> it did seem like... Um... To, to continue to pound the um, connection between Watchmen and uh, the Beano. The Beano, that, the hitherto unexamined <laughs> connection. <laughs> it did seem like this felt this character was really out of place, like someone from the Bash Street Kids had just landed in the middle of this group and decided to make a proper like Bash Street Kids joke. <laughs> it's a really safe joke in a really violent and sort of nasty world. Yeah. It just felt like a really safe joke. But, you know, it wasn't particularly bad. No, 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 but you're right. It, it, is, it is a sort of quite kind of light shit barroom joke, isn't it? It is effective. It is effective insofar as it, you do get a, a complicated picture of, uh, of of this character of Rorschach in that he he does just assault someone for the tiniest little sort of joke yeah. and he, he, you feel that taking a step back he, this is a guy who does think he's completely above the law and you know he can just do whatever the hell he likes and if he wants to break someone's finger and keep breaking fingers because all these people are vermin then he's allowed to do that yeah. and you just wonder if these are the I mean this is a classic theme of the book isn't it who watches the watchman it's like if these are the people who are supposed to be keeping everybody safe and that's what they think of everybody, 
<laughs> yeah. What sort of direction is this world going in? Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's that you know, because there's definitely a sense of doom hanging over the world that that this that this uh, this story is kind of taking part in, and um, uh, and I definitely want to kind of pull that apart um in a little bit when it kind of becomes clearer what we're talking about um but you're right like even the good guys are bad and not in that kind of like hey it was gritty it was dark it was you know it's not captain america with a slightly darker shade of blue on his shoulder pads it's it's the your main character so far walking into a bar and breaking somebody's fingers you know Hmm. i thought that the interesting thing here i noticed that when rorschach he leaves this guy on the on a heap on the floor and um, walks out of the bar, and in voiceover, the only comment he's got on it is that he he feels slightly depressed. I'm like, no fucking kidding, mate! You've just snapped somebody's fingers about to get no information whatsoever. But that's how I feel because hopefully I've got a conscience. Um, what did you make of it? I just think he's he's got that classic everything is going to shit. Yeah, depression, you know, and. Um, it's that you get a real sense of him all the way through of just just the complete isolation and solitude and and how he feels completely alone and i think there is this old connection with his um his old partner this this guy we've just been introduced to who i think they used to be crime fighting buddies together and you know even that sort of that relationships they've grown apart really and he's just this is just this guy who's um, got this obviously he's got some problems of his own and at the same time he just he feels like he feels like the only sane man in the asylum isn't he yeah yeah that's absolutely how he feels but he sort of feels like I should be running the place and giving out the electroshock therapy that's the thing isn't it he's like he's not kind of hey everybody let's get out let's all live together in harmony and stuff he's like you people are fucking awful and I wish I could shoot you all um um so in response to this kind of this this particularly sunny outlook, um, he says, "I'm going to go and see a better class of person." Um, and he he breaks into an office at the top of this skyscraper where he talks. We're introduced to a character called Adrian Veidt, who is um, described as the world's smartest man. And and they kind of exchange pleasantries in the most cursory way imaginable. They clearly know each other. They clearly hate each other. Goes right into it. Rorschach calls him calls Vite a prostitute, and Vite's just sort of like whatevs, like <laughs> as if he's like, well, I probably am a prostitute to be honest. Um, <laughs> so I'm rich. <laughs> I like the that the world's smartest man. I'm loving his purple suit. Then I thought maybe it's just his dress set. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I, you'd love it if Rorschach kind of went back to his comedy roots here and just kind of went, "World's smartest man," is it? Quote quote. Because you look like you're wearing a fucking lilac three piece to me. <laughs> I love it. I'd love it if that was. I mean, if it was a different type of book, this. If that was genuinely his sort of superpower, and he was just really smart, and the big joke was that everyone thinks he's really clever <laughs> and he's really thick. <laughs> he just dresses really snappy. Amazing. <laughs> no, no, no. You misunderstand me. I'm the world's smartest. Man. <laughs> yeah, and clearly, I mean, I'm going to give you all of the space and respect you deserve and stuff. But um, nice lapels, by the way. <laughs> uh, so they have this brief conversation. We find a little bit more backstory, more exposition. The uh, the the thing that outlawed all of the costumed adventurers back in the day was called the Keen Act. That's been in effect for about eight years. And um, they talk a little bit more about uh, the comedian uh, 
and Veidt describes him as practically a Nazi. Um, mm. What did you make of Veidt in this scene? Like, Because they're so opposed to each other, these two characters are clearly very different. You're kind of inclined, mm. or I'm inclined anyway, to pick a side, but I found that quite difficult to do here. Like, Rorschach's a psychopath, but Veidt has got models of himself all over his fucking desk. Like, I'm, like, I'm not about to pull for him either, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because there is uh, action figures, aren't there? Yeah. Is th- th- these two characters, I mean, th- this this first chapter is basically a, sort of a meet and greet with all the main superheroes, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And this guy is, I think he's the, he's the one who seems the most diametrically opposed to Rorschach in so far as one Rorschach seems to be a a complete idealist he has this view of the world which he thinks everybody should have and Veidt seems to be this complete pragmatist you know he's he's retired and turned retiring to his advantage he's the the only he seems to be the only one of all these superheroes we see who isn't a genuine super you know they're all there's one of them who's a genuine superhero, so let's discount him. Mm. But of all the others, he's the only one who's really turned it to his success. Mm. You know, he's turned being a superhero into success. And everybody else has kind of, you feel it's they've given up something and it's it's been a, I don't know, it's had a negative effect on their lives overall. Do you know what? I think that's a really, that's a very, very good description of it. And and there's there's a sense, isn't there, that kind of runs throughout this, that you, you're not going to find... A, a superhero or a costumed adventurer or whatever who's doing it out of a sense of like healthy mental equilibrium like yeah. they're all driven to it by some sort of deep psychological flaw and I think you're right and I think we're only going to see that kind of more and more um, developed and and I don't know about you but this kind of caused me to reflect a little bit on other superheroes that I'd seen where I'm like, you know, you kind of you kind of have, you know, Batman's parents are killed in front of him as a child and that's why he ends up doing what he does, but but it's all kind of quite light and you encounter it in quite a quite a even in the dark ones you're like kind of, yeah, all right, okay, yeah, get on with it. It's Batman, I know what he does, he punches people. But being presented with a whole new load of people that you've never met before and then being like, wow, these are fucked up people. Like caused me to think about other superhero movies that I'd seen, particularly movies and be like, wow, I mean, these people are just you wouldn't trust them with your pets, would you? Well, exactly, yeah. And it's uh, it's yeah, it's an inter- it's interesting that they they don't need to as we go through the book, you don't need to have a long backstory for each one of them as well. This is the event that turned me into a superhero. It's a bit deeper than that with a lot of these people. Mm. It's sort of and we'll come to it towards the end of this chapter, I think, where the this author of this of this diary mm. sort of reflects on how people got in how they all got into this mm. and whether it was whether it was a desire to fight crime or a complete disconnect from the justice system or just the fact that they had a bit of a thing for dressing up in weird costumes yeah. and yeah. It, 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 I love the fact that it was it's a complicated multi-layered sort of reasons for going into this as to why you choose to do something just like anything else yeah. you know yeah. so to why you would choose the career you choose or more often than not it's not one specific event where you say bang that's what I want to do with the rest of my life yeah. it's a combination of different things which turn you into the person you are yeah it's nice to reflect it in this book absolutely yeah they're, they're definitely on it they're definitely a cut above you know they're not just a cut above Dennis and Natchez but they're a cut above really Batman and Superman and that sort of thing as well aren't they you know there definitely seems to be more complicated stuff at play here. I love it. Uh, so Rorschach leaves Vite and, uh, and breaks into a, a secret military installation, like you do, <laughs> um, 
Which is a really weird reflection on his character, I thought, because like, he's clearly a psycho, but he's clearly got enough game to just sort of waltz past you know, American military security. Hmm. Um, and on the way in, we get more, um, more exposition. Um, it breaks down all of these different, uh, all of these different costumed adventurers and their kind of fate. So he says, Dan's a flabby failure. First night, Al runs an auto repair shop. First Silk Spectre is a bloated, aging whore, he says, gallantly. <laughs> Class personal friend. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Metropolis was decapitated in a car accident. Mothman's in an asylum. Silhouette retired in disgrace. Dollar Bill got shot. Hooded Justice went missing in 55. And again, I sort of compared this to other superheroes and imagining what they might do in 30 years' time, which is not a new conceit. Frank Miller did it in a Batman one, but I still like the idea of, like... Like, imagine... Uh, so I've, I've prepared a few here for your uh, for your reading pleasure. Right. Batman in a wheelchair with chronic arthritis. Spider-Man... <laughs> Spiders. <laughs> is this okay? <laughs> are we going to get? Suppose he's not real. Are we going to get sued? Um, no, I was thinking taste and decency. Taste, but that's fine. He's fine. Batman is Matt. I hate to break it to you. Batman is not a real person. <laughs> nor, nor by the way, are Dennis or Nasha or Minnie the Minx. Sorry, mate. Okay. Just, I, as long as that. that that's the superhero you've placed in a wheelchair. That's okay. yeah. Don't worry about it. Um, Spider Man testing cosmetics on kittens. <laughs> right. Green Goblin working for Meals on Wheels. <laughs> and then, uh, just some extras working Lord of the Rings. As yeah, well. yeah, 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 yeah. And then I th- then I thought a uh, bit bit of a sidebar. Um, Captain America embraces far left wing ideologies. Lives as a gorilla in Mexico. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, I see them all. Absolutely. So, by the way, if anybody from Marvel is listening to this, fucking copyright. All right, all of those ideas. <laughs> I think they might have beaten you to it with the characters. Though. Oh well, well, <laughs> get a good lawyer. I'll argue way out of anything, can't you? <laughs> all right. Anyway, back with Rorschach. Waltzes into this military base uh, to talk to the last two names of these people that he wants to warn about this kind of mass killer theory. Um, and stuff gets a little bit weird because he walks in on a naked man who is bright blue, 50 foot tall and has no pupils in his eyes um, hmm. who greets him politely and with absolutely no surprise Yeah. It's, it's, so this is our first introduction to, um, to Dr. Manhattan who seems hmm. to be the only proper superhero in the whole, in the whole thing what did you make of this, like, this, this introduction having been introduced previously to just a bunch of weirdos yeah, I liked it. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of at the stage. I'm just rolling with the punches at the moment. With yeah. this. So it's sort of, yeah, you turn up. Oh right, yeah. So one of the there is a genuine superhero. Well, I mean, th- there is someone with genuine superpowers. It seems. Mm. I mean, he's wandering around. He's, he's changing his his size at will. He's doing various strange things with machines, which don't look like what a mechanic could do. Mm. Yeah, um, I thought, yeah, interesting. And the relationship between these two as well, the fact that it, mm. you see, it appears to have a, a girlfriend as well, which <laughs> she may, seems weird. She may be the most forbearing girlfriend in the history of forbearing girlfriends because uh, Dr. <laughs> Manhattan quite, quite early on shows himself to be a warm and empathetic type. Rorschach talks about somebody dying and he just goes, a live body and a dead body have the same number of particles and there's no discernible difference, really. Why would I care? Hmm. Like, yeah. you can't imagine having kind of light breakfast table conversation with such a person. If you were living with somebody who instantly goes to cosmic scale on everything. 
Can you pass the milk? Eventually the milk will move to where you need it to be. Yeah, but my fucking cornflakes won't last, will it? Pass me the fucking milk. Eventually all things are dust. I get it. All right, just <laughs> pass me the fucking milk. Uh, we get more on um, uh, more from, from Sally Juspisek, um, who's Dr. Manhattan's missus. Um, uh, we get more on the, on the comedian, and, um, and apparently he tried to rape... Uh, Sally Juspisek's mother when they were both kind of Minutemen and Rorschach is really kind of dismissive of this doesn't seem that sort of bothered by it and that really confused me because of all the kind of moralising he's done all the hatred he's, he's generated before he hears about somebody close to him committing rape and he's just like well Webb's patriot wasn't he mm. it's very very weird vibe and, and that's kind of a an unresolved kind of point you know that just kind of comes up we hear that it happened and then we don't get you know we don't get anything else yeah i am um, i think that's explained later in the book mm-hmm. so um after this um laurie miss jupiter just Bizek, i should say um is uh, feeling a little bit little bit hemmed in uh by living on this military base and um uh kind of wants to get out of stuff uh she calls dan who she knows to see if he wants to go for dinner um and um, and then we get a bit more of Rorschach's diary, um, which gives us a line which I think is really important to understanding the whole thing. And um, it says, "Soon there will be war, and millions will perish." And and he kind of like kind of throws that off, just like a kind of like it's a given. And um, and it's clear. Well, I think it's clear that he's talking about kind of nuclear war. We're in the middle of the eighties here, and he's talking about the Cold War, um, mm. which is clearly you know not going the way that it went in our kind of timeline. And I find this really interesting. I don't know about you, but like, I think it's really for basically for people our age and younger to read stuff about the cold war and kind of forget how terrifying it was that everybody could die tomorrow. Cause, mm. cause we kind of grew up in an age of like cold wars over. Everything's fine. Nobody's going to get nuked tomorrow. But you know, mm. for 45, 50 years, that was it. That was the, you know, if you knew anything about global politics, you knew that you were probably going to die. So there's a kind of, I don't know, do you think the book loses a little bit of weight that way? Can you imagine it being much more powerful if you read it in, say, like like 1987 or something? Um, yeah, but I think you, you can appreciate you, you can appreciate that that is, you know, you can look at, at history and, and still see how that could be such a terrifying time to live. To be honest, I think um, people who lived through that time, although it was frightening i think there was also an element of people just sort of getting on with their lives as well yeah, yeah. and every so often you'd you get these reminders on the news and you think oh god this is quite because you see you can see these um in a lot of museums they have these old uh you know 10 steps to take in the event of nuclear attack and things like that which were just handed out to people yeah um around about this time and slightly earlier yeah. uh the interesting thing with this of course is that it it tips that the scales have been tipped. The difference to what happened in real life is the scales here have been tipped because the US have got effectively another super weapon, which is this Doctor Manhattan guy. Yeah. Um. So, um, the way you know the way the Cold War petered out, um, towards the sort of late eighties, early nineties in the in in our world, it can't do that here because, um, you don't have those two sides slowly. You know, you don't have this slow breakdown of one side, um, and the 
uh, the way yeah. that things actually went. You've got this sudden shift where the scales have violently tipped again once to once again towards America, um, in the same way that it did with the atom bomb. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you've, you've got problems that arise from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's going to be very interesting to kind of follow that through. And I think there's definitely something that. I don't know. I mean, I agree that people must have... I mean, clearly people did just get on with their lives and stuff, but there must have been a kind of background tension if you were kind of at all aware of it, of, you know, the, mm. just the possibility that you could, you know, that tomorrow everything could be over sort of thing. Um, but it's not It's not massively different to, to, for example, living in London today where you think, you know, at any moment someone could decide to turn up and blow themselves up after 9-11. Well, that's true. And but, but, I mean, that's, still but think, the odds of you being hit by that are extremely tiny, whereas the odds of you getting killed if there was a exchange of nuclear weapons... We actually see it later on. There's this incredible scene in a bunker with, uh, with President Richard Nixon, who is still the president somehow... Um, and they kind of watch a simulated nuclear attack and they lose like half of the northern US. And and the response mm. is just sort of like, oh, that's bearable. It's not bearable. Yeah. Like, you know, 150 million people just died. So, I mean, I, I, I think there's this kind of this is undercurrent of menace. And I, maybe, maybe yeah. I want to believe that that was true in real life. And maybe it's just an invention of Alan Moore's kind of overactive imagination. But um, yeah, you, you can you can see how that undercurrent could create characters um, like the ones we see here, especially Rorschach. Yeah, um, and this this sort of cheap view of life and this depression, stroke, creeping dread, which he seems to live with every hour. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. But okay, it's more difficult to see how such a mindset could create somebody like Doctor Manhattan. So we're um, we'll we'll find that out, I think, in um, mm. in the next episode. But. Um, the, uh, this is nearly the end of the chapter. We see um, Laurie and Dan go out for dinner together and they just kind of, they, we get a little bit more backstory. And then um, and then we've got something new, like the comic book bit kind of ends. And we've got, like you were talking about, um, an excerpt of Hollis's, um, the first Night Owls kind of memoirs about the Minutemen and kind of about how he came to be a night owl and decide to kind of do all of that. Um, he was inspired by the old comics, and um, and we get a little bit of kind of how the how the idea first got started with a guy called Hooded Justice. Um, there's it's quite a long extract, but a lot of it is just kind of you kind of felt like Alan Moore was just a little bit desperate to tell an ordinary story instead of having to set up twelve different characters. Um, mm. In this bit, it's quite long, but actually the plot is quite short. And that's the end of chapter one. And then we get a picture of a clock showing the time at 12 minutes to midnight in a reference, mm. presumably, to the well-received Linkin Park album. <laughs> or, or for some other reason, which I'm sure we'll come up with later. I don't know why. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So what do you make... Ticking clock. Ticking. That's not... What, 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 could, what could be that? I mean, <laughs> probably just, it's probably just... You're one part way into the book. Hope you've enjoyed it so far. Just a reminder, if you've got the washing on or time's ticking by, you need to set the video recorder, if we are in the 80s, then, you know, <laughs> maybe take a minute to make a coffee, <laughs> set the video recorder, settle down for chapter two. That's amazing. That's like sort of... That's definitely what it is. That's definitely is. I love the idea of Alan Moore kind of letting out his inner Radio 4 <laughs> announcer, just called like, and if you've enjoyed uh, chapter one... Or- <laughs> Watchmen, you can join us next week at the same time. Next, the shipping forecast. (laughs) I think Watchmen would only benefit from being performed on the radio as a radio drama, but...
Um, so what do you make of chapter one then? Uh, yeah, like I said, I think the, the, the key things I got from it, one, it's a sort of a quick whip round all the main characters, I assume, that we're going to see. Um, and number two is, yeah, it's a lot of information to drop on you, but you feel you've entered a very rich, um, if very depressing world. And um, I was I couldn't wait to, to, to get further into it, read more and find out more about how all these characters came about and sort of where they're going and, and where this great thrust is. To be honest, the, the ser- possible serial killer plot was almost secondary just to see how, to, to me, in terms of my enjoyment, mm. I was more interest, interested in just seeing how these characters are going to develop and finding out a bit more about them. I think in a similar way to, I don't know if you watched TV, various TV shows, like a TV show like Mad Men, doesn't have a great deal of plot, but the characters are so interesting that you just want to see mm. them develop and find out more about them. Mm-hmm. That was very much how I felt with the start of Watchmen. I definitely see what you mean there, yeah. And I, that's true as well, actually. A, a, a TV series that's as good as Mad Men, it's more about people responding to their times instead of... Mm oh my god somebody's been killed and we have to find who it is or oh my word there's been a car crash and you know i need to go and find i just i just want my kids back you know there's it's more about really well sketched characters responding to their times and i think we really respond to that when even when it's a bit comic book like it is here with costumed adventures and stuff you know it's not just the plot it's the people it's the time Hmm. so uh so moving on to chapter two uh we open with laurie and she's visiting her mother uh, who was the first Silk Spectre, so we've got another one of these kind of inherited costume kind of dealies kind of going on. Mm. And uh, and of course, this is the character who, according to Hollis, was uh, was raped by the comedian. Uh, and uh, But she doesn't seem to... You know, she, she has a more complicated response to this than we might expect. You know, she doesn't talk about him as, you know, that bastard. She kind of... She doesn't seem to be nearly as angry about it as Sally does. And, um, and I mean, and obviously, I mean, this is a very... This is a very uh, kind of tough thing to talk about, but it's quite a gutsy move, really, for a male writer to write a female character who kind of has an ambivalent response to being raped. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I thought it really takes a... There's something different about this. Like, the book takes a turn. Again, it's unremittingly dark, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we find out more later on in in the book, but at this point, that reaction, to, to me, it made me think, Oh, maybe there's some kind of misunderstanding here. Mm. Maybe it isn't quite as clear cut as as we've been led to believe with this. Um, maybe it's her daughter being overprotective, and, and and maybe we don't really know what happened yet. Obviously, we find out more later on. Just because I think that re- you have that reaction because it's so hard to imagine anybody being anything having this kind of reaction in the book to be, having been raped. Yeah. So we'll. We'll see. Something I love about the, these, um, it's an example of something I love about the book, how they mix scenes. Um, and this is a, this is a good, so you've got, you've got this, you've, it's, all, it's interlaced with the funeral of the comedian. So it's telling two stories at the same time. Mm. And I quite like this device because it's something you, it's very hard to do in a, in a novel, but you can do quite effectively in a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. So you're just switching from place to place. Like in the first chapter where you have the, um, the detectives investigating the crime scene and every other panel is uh, the actual crime being committed or what they think has happened. Mm. And the others are obviously the detectives looking at the crime scene. So you flick him back and forward mm-hmm. in time. I just quite like that because it's a, it's a different way of telling the story, isn't it? And it makes 
it's, it's a good excuse to to use this format rather than just a novel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's very it's very cinematic, isn't it? It's very filmic, and I think I th- mm, I'm a yeah. I'm a big fan of like that sort of dynamism. And I, I yeah, I agree with you. I dig it. Um, so as you say, we're jumping around, and and the next place we jump is actually a flashback. Um, we go back to the formation of the original Minutemen. You know, this this first group of costumed adventurers, which has the first Night Isle and the first Silk Spectre, and a very young comedian. Um, there's a little thing that I want to pull out here. We're not going to do too many of these um, because they're scattered throughout the book. But like I said, you can reread this and reread this and reread this book again and again, and you'll always notice something new. And this time through, what I noticed was uh, there's a there's a strategically placed newspaper, that that classic piece of visual storytelling, um, <laughs> and uh, and this one is telling us that scientists have discovered a new wonder element, plutonium. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which I'm sure doesn't bode poorly for the future or have anything to do with the plot. Um, so um, I just keep an eye out for those throughout the book. We're not going to be able to flag them very much, but they, they really do kind of enrich the story, particularly the politics, actually. Anyway, so th- then we go, having had um, Sally, the first Silk Spectre's kind of memory of, of, um, of her sexual assault, then we actually get the scene, which obviously is... is it's gruesome but um yeah th- there goes there goes any any hope that it wasn't a rape was, yeah, was gonna, yeah yeah it lasted for about a page and, and a half attempt, attempted right yeah, yeah yeah exactly because it is broken up um by hooded justice who is um uh, he's pretty fucking badass right the comedian is no chump but hooded the hooded justice kicks shit into the comedian absolutely hammers him and um and there's a bit of me which is up on the desk cheering at this point i have to say um, and um, but it's interesting the way the comedian gets him to stop. Hooded Justice is 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 set to kill the comedian, but then the, then uh, the comedian kind of says, you know, you, you, this is what you love, isn't it? You get off on beating people up, and mm. it's something about that seems to hit home because Hooded Justice stops and kind of just kicks him out of the room instead of killing him as he seems set to do. Um, what did you make of that little that little kind of interaction? Yeah, it felt like there was a there's a bit of and you felt it in um, in the, the 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 book before as well in Hollis's mem- memoirs where there's a bit of guilt attached to dressing up as a superhero as well with a lot of these guys because they're not quite sure why they're doing it and they do sometimes question their own motives. Yeah. Um, I quite liked a, cu- a couple of other things with this. One was the um, the costume of the comedian compared to the. Um, the thing that we see later on, the, the, the Captain the America gimps crossed with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, this seems like a more, it's almost like something you'd see the Joker wearing in Batman. It's a more traditional sort of mm. comic style yeah. outfit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is which is quite interesting. And also the thing with Hooded Justice, that he, he does come across as a hero when, he's, when he sort of steps in to stop this horrible crime. But... You'd expect it to end with him sort of kneeling down and picking, picking, uh, picking her up and saying, "Oh, are you okay?" You know, but it's he just—he's really cold with the victim as well. He just says, "Get up," and that's it. Yeah, well, it's even know, she's worse sort of than on that. The floor looking up. It's him. even worse than that. Isn't it? He yeah. says he stands up, stands over her, says, "Get up and cover yourself up," and it's like, yeah. fuck, like that's. I, I, astonishingly cold. So again, you get this sense that he's being driven by something. Other than compassion, like compassion is thin on the ground amongst these 
superficially kind of do-gooders you know yeah it's a tough scene to talk about this one isn't it as you, as you just said and we come back to it right at the end of the book as well and um the final sort of scene with sally's mum um is going to be yeah. is going to be interesting to grapple with as well yeah so uh, but if i mean if we, we leave that where it is for for now but it is yeah yeah it, it's it it's a brave scene isn't it for a for a a graphic for any kind of literature to approach and especially like two blokes who've written this yeah it it is possibly foolhardy i would say but i mean i think that's that's not my call to make i think there i I think i think if i was a woman i would have more right to kind of decide whether that was brave or stupid but anyway um Mm. so so we move on we move on uh to we're back in the present um and um uh, we're with Vite at Blake's funeral, and then then with the, we're into another flashback, um, uh, and the formation of a second group, sort of like the Minutemen, but much later on. You've got the comedian in the corner looking looking much more like Captain America Gimp, and um, uh, they were called the Crime Busters, and uh, and we've got you know more various characters kind of around the edges, and but it's, it doesn't have the same sense of. The first one, the Minutemen, you know, the scene turns ugly, but there there does seem to be a kind of public sense of um, trying hard to do good stuff. Whereas here, there's just a, there's a public sense of people gathering together to tell each other why they're shit and why they shouldn't work together. Um, mm. And I thought that was a very interesting difference between what I think the culture of the 40s was and what the culture of the 70s was. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm. You know, the 70s is much more cynical, much more questioning, much more, you know, everything else, whereas... Um, whereas uh, the 40s was, you know, I imagine it being much more kind of like, by golly, we'd better do some good there and other stuff, you mm. know? Yeah, and it's, I think it's nice that the, uh, there are almost two holdovers here, aren't there? The, it's gone in, they've gone in two directions, this this old group. So you've got the idea, sort of the, the idealist uh, Captain Metropolis who wants everyone to be friends and work it out and is still optimistic about the future if we can all work together mm. and then you've got the the other side of the coin which is what the comedians become which is completely disconnected mm. um you know c- compared to the limited amount he was before yeah. i mean we were introduced to this guy as an attempted as, as a guy committing attempted rape mm. and it looks like i mean from the the stuff that you get later on in this chapter that you know He's not exactly a reformed character when yeah. you meet him again years later. Absolutely. And, and you know, and it seems to be the comedian is kind of making this moral judgment on the world. It's like he's kind of setting out to say to the entire world what he says to Hooded Justice. You know, I, I am you. You know, what I, my brutality is a reflection of your brutality. Um, and he kind of seems to take a great deal of kind of dark glee in acting that way. Um, mm. But this meeting, I thought you were absolutely right to talk about um, Captain Metropolis because he ends up kind of being like, he ends up saying somebody has to save the world quite forlornly as the meeting breaks up. I thought it was a really interesting, great line because that's what superheroes are supposed to do, isn't it? Um, but mm. this is such a cynical world that no one, you know, not even they themselves trust themselves to do that. Not even they think mm. they're going to save the world. Um, yeah. And then from there we we flash back quite quickly to Vietnam and it's in Vietnam. Can, 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 we, can we just just very quickly talk about costume? Oh yeah 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 yeah. Because I mean to on a lighter note, R- Rorschach is the only one with real style here, isn't he? <laughs> He's got a dirty Mac on. How is that style? 
<laughs> Do you not think there's an element as there's the sort of the pinstripe? I can imagine some kind of hipster wearing that. <laughs> oh god, that's the next step, isn't it? Hipsters who dress like <laughs> fucking Rorschach. Dear oh dear. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just because he's standing next to Night Owl, who looks like some <laughs> kid who's at a 10th birthday party. No, i tell you what it looks like. It's a Blue Peter project waiting to happen, that costume, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Sticky back plastic all over the place. I, I, I just think most of these costumes have a great deal to be desired. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Although I do, I do, I do like, I do like the, the Mothman costume, which we see later on, where it's just guy dressed as a fucking massive moth. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, it's, there is the bit where he walks through and somebody goes, hey, watch with the wings. <laughs> it's just like, imagine some, like being like, I'm going to fight crime by golly, but I'm going to need to make some fake moth wings. Obviously. <laughs> um, right, well, I, after that, thank you for that light interlude because we're back in, we're back, back where the laughs come from. We're in Vietnam. Oh, God. Um, mm. And, uh, but this is very important kind of, uh, very important moment because, Vietnam seems to be this kind of pivot point where, um, uh, you know, where in, in, obviously in history, in real history, the US lost Vietnam and went into a period of really kind of questioning itself and, and retrenchment and so on. But it seems that um, Dr. Manhattan has meant that the US is, has won the war in Vietnam kind of at a canter, really, like almost overnight. Mm. Um, and instead of the last helicopter out of Saigon, we get the first helicopter in with Richard Nixon on it, mm. um, and um, uh, and then we've got um, we've got a scene with Doctor Manhattan and the comedian. The comedian's drinking heavily in a bar, and Doctor Manhattan at this point seems to be more humane. He's not cracking out that you know life and death are basically the same thing on the subatomic level crap. He's mm. you know he's talking about the violence of the war and he's he's kind of taking the comedian to pieces really for being for being inhumane, and the comedian really does nothing to to destroy that image of him because. Um, a Vietnamese woman comes in, pregnant by Blake, and um, and he kind of brushes her off and says he's going back to the states. So she attacks him, and he kills her. And um, and you know, yet more evidence of this guy who seems to have been embraced by the establishment. It is a very anti-American government book. This, you know, the the guy in this who does really well and who is sponsored by the government and so on, is is this horrifying monster. Hmm. But some, um, uh, but you know, uh, kind of, you know, Manhattan, the, the comedian, um, kills this woman that he's got pregnant, and then the, the, you know, Manhattan says, "What the fuck are you doing?" And exactly the same way, like with Hooded Justice, the comedian turns around and says, "You're complicit in this. You know, you could have stopped me from killing her. You could have taken the gun to pieces. You could have vaporized the bullet. You could have teleported us to Mars, but you didn't. So you're just as bad, and, and it's your fault." And, and that's really interesting, actually, because I actually I think he's right. Like I think Doctor Manhattan clearly could have done something about it, and he didn't. Mm. You know? Yeah. <sighs> but I mean, to be honest, the the guilt still lies with the comedian, doesn't it? If he didn't do it in the first place, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Very true. So. Um, uh, it's just it's just that it's that surrendering of all personal responsibility that isn't it? Yeah. I, well, I mean, and and you know, and there we knock up against one of the huge philosophical themes running through the book, isn't it? This idea of free will, and we're gonna. Well, I think we're gonna come onto this more next time. But this idea of like, you know, if if the universe started with a single bang, and all the all all movement and energy and everything has come from that moment, you know, is anybody really in control of their own actions? Does free will exist? Sort of thing. Um. 
and um, the comedian clearly thinks that it does, but it doesn't matter because we're all fucked anyway. And um, and there are some interesting moments with Doctor Manhattan where I, I kind of think he he sort of comes to believe that, because um, uh, as we'll see later on, he responds to stress in a particularly selfish way. Anyway, so um, we we move on um, to a third flashback, which is from Dan Dreiberg's perspective. This is the second night out. And um, and we kind of flash back to what you might have to call sort of glory days, I suppose, of these costumed adventurers. Um, not so very glorious, though, because he's working with the comedian, which means it's kind of grubby at the very best. And Dan's trying to keep, you know, people are rioting largely about masked adventurers. He's trying to get them off the streets, and the comedian's just fucking loving it. He's like, he's lobbing smoke grenades in, and he's getting ready to fire guns at people and stuff. And um, I don't know if you noticed this, but in the middle we get this little tiny drop in here where it says that Rorschach has changed since he handled a kidnapping case a few years back. And we just get a little bit of backstory for Rorschach. Um, and this is a really rich character piece that we're going to kind of knock up against in a little bit. But And, and then there's, there's, there's one of my... I don't I want to say favourite because it's incredibly bleak, but it's a great character line and it really sums up a big part of what I think the book is about you know Dan looks at the chaos around him and the comedian and he says what happened to the American dream and the comedian goes it came true you're looking at it it's just like mm. that is cold like to write a book out of that sort of place that is that is just an incredibly bleak way of looking at it but um, I think the book makes quite a good argument of it what do you think I think it's the, um, the, the it's making it's trying to make a couple of points I suppose one is that it's kind of sometimes be careful what you wish for in mm-hmm. that yeah uh th- this is this is his view this is the author's view of the what kind of maybe would have happened in the world if america got everything they wanted in you know uh, if they'd have yeah. won the war in vietnam what would that have what would have happened you wouldn't have that um period of questioning yourself as a country and would would you be worse off for that you know and there's a certain amount of hubris there isn't there yeah. i think also it's it, maybe it's it's making a I don't know the guy's politics, but I assume he's quite a left-wing kind of guy. You would be right. It seems this is sort of a a right-wing nightmare, isn't it? This yeah. is this is almost him saying, "This is what happens if you take the sort of Iron Rand philosophy to its and put it into practice." Oh, yeah. Because the, you have you have this sort of underclass of people writing in the streets and have having nothing to live for, mm. and it everything seems you know even law and orders pulled back um, to the extent that there's just a few vigilantes and not a lot else. I think there's a, is there a, a newspaper that in one of the panels saying uh, cops say, let them do it. Mm. Uh, yeah. And, and it, you know, it, it's basically just, it, it, it's, it's sort of libertarianism taken to the extreme, isn't it? Where it's just, just leaving people to it. You know what? I, I didn't get that, that sense of a dystopia actually. Cause, cause obviously, you know, you kind of know that there's this, there's this law that's passed which kind of succeeds mm. in abolishing these vigilantes. So, you know, there must still have been a kind of social structure around. But it's definitely mm. true that these these riots come from a place of the, um, you know, the police have kind of gone on strike, basically. Just, all right, let them do it, is how I read that. Is yeah. how I read that headline, you know, like, fuck it, I'm not doing it anymore. Then They're going to turn up and just shoot people with masks on. You know, no accountability, no nothing. Screw it! I'm not. I'm, yeah. go, I'm not going to try and be a good cop when you empowered the bad cops by default. Yeah, it seems that it, it seems almost like a, this world is a almost the opposite extent to something like George Orwell's 1984, where the state takes a 
you know, intense, extreme, malevolent interest in every single aspect of your life. Hmm. And this is the world where the state just couldn't care less about what you do uh-huh. and just leaves everybody to it. Yeah. And it's everybody out for themselves. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a good read, actually. I think, And I think that's an interesting thing because you've got this... On the one hand, you've got an, a vision of the world in this book which is so bleak and uncompromising and is kind of like everybody's fucked and everybody's fucking, you know. And then, but it, it balances that with this like total critique of the kind of libertarian response to that, which says, right, well, then I'm not having anything to do with the world. Um, and it turns out, you, you know, you can't get away from that. You can't get away with that. We're all on the same planet. Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, I, this is just great. I love this kind of chewy philosophical stuff. I just, I, I, I dig that anybody can write something with this kind of depth to it. Um, and then we, um, then, then we have a, you know, the, the funeral's over and we follow Rorschach away. And um, uh, where, where he attacks an old man by hiding in his fridge. How, how is he not dead I know right like honestly he's, what have we seen him do so far we've seen him rappel up the side of a building with a, with, <laughs> with, with one rope hanging from a gas powered like grappling hook we've seen him break into military bases we've seen him go into crowded violent bars start fights and walk out again we've seen him pick on actual superheroes <laughs> 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 and, and 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 now he's hiding in people's fridges. The fuck. Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll give him it because rule of cool. It um it is pretty brilliant when he bursts yeah. out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what it reminded me of? The sound he makes when he does that. It um it right. reminded me of um it's like Donkey Kong in um in in, uh, in Mario Kart. Just see when he when he picks up a big banana or a big weapon or something, he goes. Rawr, rawr. Carries on going. That's it. Donkey Kong is Rorschach. Rorschach is Donkey Kong. You heard it here first. Um, But uh, after this, um, it turns out that this guy is a former supervillain called Moloch. Um, And and Rorschach reckons that he's this mask killer character. Um, And at that point, Moloch's clearly terrified. You kind of expect a confession. But actually, you get more information on what happened right before the comedian got killed. Um, and it's, it's quite a cryptic conversation and I kind of definitely the first time through I just read this and I was like uh, alright presumably that's all going to pay off in several chapters time um, but what he talks about is um, uh, what Dr. Manhattan might do if somebody messes with him then he says something about an island full of writers and scientists and artists and then which really seems to have disturbed him um, you know more than you would think a collection of the intelligentsia should have done really and then um, then he says it's all part of a joke and that everyone's a part of the joke without knowing it and 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 then he says he doesn't understand and then he leaves hmm. um, what did you make of this scene like on your first read through did you like did it mean that Dr. Manhattan's a bad guy like what did you think uh, it kind of went over my head this scene I was just yeah. uh, I thought I, I just I'd put it down to the disparate ravings of someone who's committed so many horrible things and seen so many atrocities many of them by his own hand that he's he's unraveling and just going crazy yeah and i i I agree with that and i i always when i read this i feel like it's a bit of a missed opportunity because i mean fair enough it sets up stuff later in the book but it's there's something really dramatic about how it's like there's a there's a flashing neon light outside the window so it's all like in like this 
bright orange and then this really dark purple and then these really bright things going on. It pulls you through the scene. But what he's saying is totally incomprehensible. And I always feel mm. like, ah, uh, you know, I kind of want that to be chunkier than it is. But that, maybe that's the point, you know, maybe that maybe creates suspense, I guess. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, so so we have that, and that's doubtless going to become important. Um, and um, uh, and then that's the end of the chapter. And we've got a little bit more of, of Rorschach's diary, and then uh, then we get another chapter of Under the Hood from uh, from the first Night Owl, a bit more backstory about the Minutemen. And, uh, mm-hmm. and this is where he talks about what you were saying before. You know, there's this kind of like, yeah, a lot of us were politically extreme. A lot of us got kicks out of doing it kind of sexually. Um but then he says something really, really extraordinary. And he says somehow, like, this crazy for dressing up and fighting crime messed up the entire world. And mm. I don't know about you, but he talks about the Minutemen. It turns out it was like a media thing. Marketing, basically. Um, mm. And it didn't last for very long, but somehow it's ended up screwing up the world. And like, I, this just seems to be a bit of a leap to me at this point. I'm like, yeah, so you fuck stuff up and the world is terrible, but how is it... How is it your fault, you know? Mm. Yeah. I thought he he was making a more general point about just the um this this the mindset that made them become want to become superheroes mm. uh, sort of is the same mindset that has has led to the world really going down the pan. Mm. In that oh, there's, that's there's something mi- yeah. there's some there's something missing from from how people are after this sort of after this victory in Vietnam, and it's you yeah. know sort of like I said before, this the fact that everything that the country kind of wanted to come true has maybe it wasn't the best thing for for everybody in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it definitely makes that it this as alternative history. I think it's really compelling. Um, you know, it's hard to argue with the Vietnam War being a good thing at all, but you know, here it kind of pitches. You know, the idea of America winning would have been would have been just as bad as America losing, if not worse. Um, mm. Anyway, yeah. So, so we get that quite bold statement, and that's the end of chapter two. And then we get we get a clock, and get, guess what time is on it, Matt? The last one was at twelve to midnight. Guess guess what time it is now? Eleven to midnight. It's eleven to midnight, Matt. There's no fucking around in this book. Symbolism in the midnight hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I dare you to come up with a song for every one of these clocks. <laughs> Can I just say, just in that last little chapter, is this yeah. the, is this the chapter where he um, he talks about Dollar Bill um, being oh, being the first ever um, like sponsored? Yeah, superhero. yeah, it is. Yeah, because is this muscly dude with like a massive dollar sign on, and he 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 was sponsored by a bank like as security. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely love that because <laughs> I'd imagine because it, cause it was like all glitz mm. um, obviously it's all glitz and no substance in the end and he ends up getting killed because of how much glitz there is I'd, I just I always imagine like there's a robbery in place and then over the loudspeakers so it goes here comes the money <laughs> and, then, and he comes like a wrestler tagging hands <laughs> doing a pose that's amazing <laughs> you see I, it's interesting because my head went to the exactly the opposite place I just I imagine because my thing is in a bank most of the time robberies are not taking place 
So, yeah. but he's got to be there in case one happens in his costume. <laughs> so I just had this image of Dollar Bill sort of standing in the corner, people coming up to him and going, can you give me money advice? And he goes, I'm a superhero. Yeah, but I really need some advice on my ices. Look, don't make this any more awkward than it already is. <laughs> he's like a beef eater. He's just standing there. People keep coming up taking selfies. Just to <laughs> no wonder he got shot. I bet he got his cape stuck in the door on purpose. Anything is better than this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant anyway all right okay so chapter three um so we're back out on the streets of manhattan but the voiceover there's a voiceover but it's not rorschach it's um <clears throat> it seems to be about pirates so Hello. naturally <laughs> because they because because you know what it was what it was missing so far was pirates as far as i'm concerned mm. um you can always have pirates. Pirates. I, I, I haven't yet to find a, any kind of story where the introduction of pirates is a bad well, thing. Well, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. But this isn't. This is no Jack Sparrow story, right? It's it's no. fucking bleak. <laughs> um, but as, uh, we're, we're going to get more of that all the way through. At the moment, we just know that it's a guy whose ship is raided by something called the Black Freighter, um, and uh, and it's being read by a kid leaning on a hydrant, um, and while he reads this, there's a news vendor talking about how America should nuke Russia because, well, it's that sort of classic man-on-the-street sort of, like, London cabbie kind of vibe. You know, kind of, oh, just fucking nuke him, mate. Just fucking nuke him. Take him out. Do you know what I mean? End of the day, <laughs> see a lot of stuff, me. Um, and then, then we cut to Laurie and John. So there's Dr. Manhattan and Laurie in bed. And they're in bed and shit's about to get kinky, right? I can feel it, baby. <laughs> it's constant joy to me the way you've always got a 1980s hit to sing behind a particular moment. It was either that one or. That's <laughs> so good. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, yeah, and you don't know how good it's going to get, right? Because it's not just Laurie and John in there. No, no, it's Laurie and John and John and John. <laughs> John's also outside working on his experiments, like some sort of horrifying sex version of the film Multiplicity. Do you ever see that with Michael Keaton? No, but I'll, I'll never be able to. <laughs> I've saved you some trouble there, to be honest. You should thank me. Um, anyway, stuff's definitely tense. Um, and uh, Laurie, Laurie's pretty pissed that he's, he's kind of getting it on whilst also working on the minor household chores. Um, and and also technically at the office um, so she throws a glass of juice at him and he just sort of goes see through and it flies through him it smashes and then he reconstructs it in midair and it's like jeez you should write a book about how not to deal with domestic arguments you really should <laughs> do you know what I mean <laughs> just like somebody's angry enough with you to attack you you know the thing to do at that moment is not to point out that you're basically God <laughs> do you know what I mean but he's just like I'll just fix that glass. Oh, are you upset about something? I don't understand why. You're just fundamental particles. <laughs> Do you know what's strange about Dr. Manhattan at this stage? That- and and of all the things that are strange about him, you're making sort of this this odd. But um, I was gonna I was gonna refer to this this guy as Big Blue Swinging Dick. <laughs> <because> <laughs> Because he's a, he's got a giant blue penis which appears a bit later on, but I've just realised that for the first two chapters or three chapters, um, it's almost like a comedy in that all these items are cunning, cunningly placed to hide it. So you know, have you noticed like her arm height, and then then there's a little pile of foam. And, 
I don't, I'm not quite sure why they did that, but it's it's obviously something they decided to do. Uh, yeah. Maybe they just think it'd take away from the drama of the scene if it's, it probably, it's big blue dong. It probably <laughs> would, wouldn't it? Like he's just he's just whopped out. He's copped to the wind, and you're trying to concentrate on the subtle character notes. <laughs> it's not going to work, is it? Because he ends up later on, he puts a little pair of black trousers on. Yeah, but at this stage, he's, but he's, yeah, he's, he's just he's swinging he's free. Like Austin Powers in it. There's <laughs> <laughs> watermelons are turning up. Amazing. <laughs> right, right, okay. Now that we've addressed the important matter of Doctor Manhattan's penis, um, <laughs> um, Laurie, Laurie leaves. Uh, then we cut to an interview being given to a newspaper. Newspaper is called the Nova Express, and they're talking to an older woman who it turns out used to be with Dr. Manhattan. Um, and we've actually seen her before back at the first crime busters meeting. Uh, she's kind of on his arm and she says, you know, I kind of want to leave. And Laurie was there as well, but Laurie was only 16. Um, and we find out a bit later on that it was actually from that meeting that Dr. Manhattan and Laurie got together. So it's just, again, lots more sympathetic and relatable characters and behavior from all of these people. So um, we learn uh, after this, we learn a bit more about Dr. Manhattan from this conversation. Uh, we learn that he doesn't get old. And uh, we also learn that this newspaper is running a sort of hate piece on him. Um, and they've mm. definitely got at least one reader because Laurie is pissed. Um <laughs> And she's run to Dan Dryberg for a shoulder to cry on. Uh, and John responds quite calmly to Laurie running out and uh, starts getting ready for a TV interview. And True professional. True, true professional. No messing around there. Even, even puts on his bow tie without using his hands. Right. I had to wear a bow tie for a wedding about a year ago. Right. It took me literally... I was the best man and I spent more time putting my tie on than I did writing my speech. I know, I could tell. <laughs> <laughs> you shit, you weren't even You're there. asking for that then. <laughs> I'll give you that because that was that was executed to perfection, you cheeky bastard. <laughs> I should have said, I know I sat through it because that just sounds like, I know I saw your bow tie and it looked magnificent. <laughs> well, do you know what? You can't go back and edit the past, can you, Matt? So I'm afraid you're on, you're on record complimenting my bow tie. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, Dr. Manhattan does it effortlessly and um, uh, teleports into the TV studio, freaks everybody out, doesn't seem to care. Um, and um, and I'm quite looking forward to the next chapter. We're going to get some more kind of Dr. Manhattan. What's going on? I just love the idea of him teleporting in just being like, word. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, there's a G-man there. Not George Martin, no, 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 an actual government individual um, who mm. uh, tells Dr. Manhattan not to say anything about the situation in Afghanistan, um, mm. which I think is a bit of a tease, really, in a comic book. To have a character say, by the way, this is a thing, but don't talk about it. But mm. <laughs> I want to know about it now that you've mentioned it. <laughs> um, and then, then we flick to this really interesting sequence where we're cutting in between um, Laurie and Dan kind of walking the streets um, who who kind of clearly look like easy pickings, um, and we cut between the TV interview and this, um, and uh, Laurie, Laurie and Dan Dryberg, they're about forty, you know, they look a bit vulnerable, perhaps, and a gang move in to mug them, get the knives out, and go in there. And if you want to make a, a, a 
league table of epic fails in comic books. It's the decision that this gang made walking into that alleyway, <laughs> knives out on two former two former um, forty year old uh, crime fighters because they absolutely fucking kick them. <laughs> And what I loved about this, right, is that not only is this just like, oh, you used to fight crime for a living and now I'm trying to, you know, have a go with a shiv. But also, they're going through really bad kind of life experiences. So you sort of imagine, imagine somebody trying to rob Bruce Wayne while he's going through a midlife crisis. It's just the worst idea in the world. And I just, I love how kind of mercilessly they sort of sort this out. Um, and, And apparently, so do they. Because there's a moment and there's gasping and you can almost hear the Barry White kind of fading up. <laughs> but it passes. So they just have a cigarette instead, you know, not at all symbolically. Um, cut back to uh, Dr. Manhattan at the TV studio. Um, and uh, this is absolutely amazing. I love this as a character moment for, for Dr. Manhattan, right? The presenter asks him about the lamest joke in the history of television. He just says, I have to ask you, what's up, Doc? And like, and there's cheering in the audience, and I'm like, Alan, you're taking it a bit too far there, son. I don't think, I don't, even in the most fatuous chat show environment, would anybody applaud that? Come on. I find it quite comforting that even in an extremely dystopian world of uh, impending nuclear holocaust, that Bugs Bunny still exists. <laughs> everyone gets the reference. That's amazing. Yeah, that's true. Always look on the bright side, eh? Um... <laughs> Uh, and what I love even more than that shit joke is um, Dr. Manhattan's response where he says, up is a relative concept. It has no intrinsic value. Like, imagine him being a guest on your show. You know, you're trying to keep it light, trying to keep it zingy. You're coming up with some fairly shit material, but you're you're in the mix and you're having fun. And then this guy comes out with the cosmic perspective joke killer. Then, then the uh, journalist stands up hits him with a fairly hard question about how loads of people in his life, Dr. Manhattan's life, have kind of contracted serious cancer. Um, So it would seem that this guy's from the same newspaper that's kind of doing this hate piece. Um, And the questions get tougher and it's all getting really, really tense. And and for saying that he's like, he's basically, you know, the superhuman, the ubermensch, the supreme being almost, Dr. Manhattan loses his shit fairly quickly. And um, and teleports everybody else outside the studio. Now, I, I'm sort of interested in this, right? Because because um, is that is that what a journalist is going to try and do? Does he not try and just publish the story the next day, rather than going to an interview and harassing him on live TV? Like, did that make sense mm. to you? Uh, I suppose you you want to get a reaction. Yeah, no, that would make sense. I suppose. Yeah, they, they would they would get him on. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, have they not published the story as well? No, I think that he's, he, that's the thing. He preempts his own story. I don't think it's been published yet. Okay. So is this just like in- sort of an sort of a, a journalistic ambush? They've got the story ready to go, and then they, they get him on to ask him. About yeah, it. I suppose so. Yeah, weird to do it on camera. Yeah. Anyway, this is this is of no consequence. Um. Anyway, so uh, Doctor Manhattan teleports everybody out of the studio, and it's fairly ominous. And uh, and in keeping with the ominousness, the Black Freight is back. Jack Sparrow's goth younger brother is back with us and um, the the man on the freighter is absolutely terrified because uh, he believes the freighter is moving on to his his hometown David's town he's all alone um, that's all we get from uh, from the black freighter right now 
And that, but then we cut back to Dr. Manhattan, who goes home, tells the army he's leaving, and um, doesn't stop to pack, just uh, teleports to Arizona, he says, and then Mars. Like you do. Why not? I know, it's a fairly comprehensive hissy fit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite, quite epic, really, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Anyway, um, so, um, and the last scene of the chapter is... Um, uh, Dr. Manhattan kind of walks into what looks to be some sort of ruined test base in the desert, picks up a photo, mm. looks up at Mars, and he's gone. And we end with a quote from the Black Fater about God departing, eh? Because subtext mm. is for suckers. Mm. There, are, there are moments, I always feel like at the end of these chapters, there's a moment where he's got all this, like, Alan Moore's had a lot of fun playing around with, like, subtle references and moments and back and forth and subtext and character psychology. And then at the end, he's just like, by the way, everybody, this is what's happening. Bosh. <laughs> yeah. The other thing we've got is, is a moment where we meet the president, who is indeed Richard Nixon horrifyingly in the mid 80s somehow he's managed to get elected three times or four times in a row by now it must be that scene is a direct consequence of the vietnam victory isn't yeah. it he's been allowed to change um the constitution isn't it to to, get... to allow him to stand for three terms jeez imagine that bloody hell and we, we assume is it just three terms or is it so, sort of unlimited um, terms is he almost a dictator un- for life sort of thing yeah um i don't know it's never i don't think it's ever really addressed although i'd be very very surprised if it was if Alan Moore wrote a dystopian universe in which there were still term limits, you know, I feel like if he's gonna if he's gonna have Nixon be president, he's gonna make him president for life just so you can make it as bad as it could possibly be. So um so we've got this thing and yeah, and we have this kind of uh, we've got this scene in the bunker where they kind of run a simulation of what it'll be like if Russia launches nuclear weapons at the US. And um I've I've actually seen a couple of scenes like this in films, but it never ceases to be shocking to me how casually people talk about the kind of you know, oh we've lost Great Britain, you know, oh, that's an acceptable loss. We've lost, uh, clearly I'm biased because I come from Great Britain, but it's still like, you know, just the idea that back then it would have been of kind of a low order global consequence for the whole of Northern Europe to get turned into cinders, you know? Mm. Um, And you really, I, I felt like this really dragged us into the kind of weight and depth of, uh, of, the, of the kind of global situation that all of this is happening in. What, what did you make of it? Did, it? did it kind of give you that global perspective? Yeah, like I say, it, it did ram it home to you, the, the idea that um, the, the fear of living at that time, I suppose. And, and also the fact that they're still running these, despite having Dr. Manhattan, you know, now that he's left, it's sort of, it's the consequence of having that that weight, sudden the sudden tipping of the balance of power towards one side the thing is, if that if that thing that gives you the power suddenly disappears, you have that equally uh, violent tilt back, mm. and you do, it's hard to. It's like it's like if you have a, a pair of scales and you stick a massive weight on one side. Um, if you if you pull it off quickly, you're not going to get equilibrium. It it flies back in the opposite direction, doesn't it? Mm. And that's that's I think that's the kind of the broader point it's making here mm. is that. Um, having such a massive advantage to one side, which can appear and then disappear so suddenly, is actually really bad news for the side that has the advantage as yeah. well, because yeah. it puts you in a really vulnerable position if you were ever to lose that advantage. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and that's what we see here, isn't it? You know, he kind of he leaves the planet, um, and um, uh, yeah, and and you know, we we end on this real kind of knife edge. Um, in fact, in fact, my notes literally contain the words at this point. 
Dun dun dun. <laughs> and that's that's where we end it for the comic bit of, of chapter three. But we end with um, the last excerpt from Under the Hood, where we learn about how Hooded Justice died. And and then there's a then there's a a, a wittily titled one of those kind of academic witty titles where it says Doctor Manhattan superpowers and the superpowers. Hey, yeah. and you can almost hear a professor of political science going, "Oh, that love and rolling in the aisles." Yeah, awful, <laughs> awful. But but we do find there's, a, there's also the, the the first picture on this this part of the no, of the of the memoirs. Uh, there's this picture of Sally Jupiter's husband and he's the sort of it's the archetypal sleazy businessman isn't oh, it it's it a is. perfect portrait of one it's, it's hilarious awful <laughs> like it's, I, I but again i really i really love the way in this in this instance i love the way that they they're kind of that because it's a comic book you kind of have license to be a little bit less subtle and mm. you can kind of you know if you want to draw the most stereotyped caricature of a greasy bastard in order to communicate the fact that a character is a greasy bastard, you can, and you don't surrender all of the kind of depth and stuff that you've built up. Whereas in a film, if you put in a cliche, then everything else is lost. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, so we, we learn a bit more about Dr. Manhattan, who has proper superpowers, it would seem, um, you know, and uh, and quickly gets grabbed by by the government. And he's, and this is, this is so American way of dealing with the fact that you've just acquired basically a natural wonder as part of your military regime. Like, they put him on telly in a funky little outfit, melting tanks and stuff. <laughs> melting tanks and dismantling guns, and that's what we do. It's, it's, a, it's the TV special, end of the world TV special. Tune in on NBC. So, uh, so that's the end of the chapter. And we get another clock at Matt. Ten to ten to absolutely ten to, ten to yeah. midnight. Got uh, you. you yeah. Got a song? No. Um, ten to ten to ten ten ten. That's absolutely well done. Well done indeed. <laughs> that was you would have been well within your rights there to just say no, but you didn't. That's why you're a professional. Oh no, I'll always deliver. Don't worry about that. <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to dodgy songs, dodgy that's songs. Uh, that's my forte. Uh, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. All right. So, um, so, uh, so that's it. The, the only thing to say about this is that these clocks now have blood kind of seeping further down the page towards them because of the, um, because of subtext. Um, hmm. But so, so, what do you make of this? This first quarter of of Watchmen. It's uh, again, it's a lot to to throw at you at once, isn't it? But. Hmm. You can feel the the cogs really beginning to turn now, and a few sort of pieces being put in place um, to set things up for the for the future. And it's just, I think that the the thing you take away from I take away from the early chapters of Watchmen is just how rich the universe is, mm. and that they've they've really the the author and the artist have gone to great pains to create a, an alternative version of of what we've got in what we had in the eighties. And it's it's fascinating to see them play with those big themes of um, you know of, of government and of, of philosophy and of these two great powers going up against each other with this just one just one tweak to how things turned out and how there's that the classic sort of butterfly effect as to how everything changes because of one difference mm. and uh, yeah I find that really interesting and, and once again I'm just enjoying spending time with these really unusual characters many of which I, I don't really know how i feel about them i don't even know if i like them very much 
but I'm I'm certainly intrigued by them, and mm. that's that's more interesting than even the plot at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I very much agree with that. Actually, like I think it's the characters that really pull you through this. So there has been a lot of front ending of backstory and character development and stuff, but I think the next section should have a lot of a lot of fantastic stuff. So um, so there we go. We're ready for it. Mm. Time to ask if you if you've any thoughts on uh, on Watchmen yourself. If you want to get involved in the uh, in the reading of this, uh, we're going to be reading from uh, chapter four to chapter six next time. Uh, but if you've any thoughts on chapters one to three or four to six from uh, the Watchman graphic novel by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, uh, get them into sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com, or we're on Twitter at sharkliveroyal. There it is. There it is. Any, any final thoughts from you from yourself, Dave? No, it's been. I, I, apart from to say that you know, I think it's a masterpiece, and I'm enjoying it. But I'm enjoying it on a whole new level now that I've actually got to talk nonsense about it for an hour and a bit at a time. So, uh, so this is great. I'm looking forward to next week. More nonsense next More week. More nonsense. Tune in. And if you've enjoyed chapter one of Watchmen, you can join us next week at the same time. Next, the shipping forecast. Mm-hmm.